Today we're going to pick up in chapter 38 with the story of Judah and Tamar. What I'd like to share with you this evening, I want to take a look at this story that comes right at the beginning of the Joseph story. We have been getting ready to get into this very well-known story of Joseph, amazing technicolor dream code. He goes to Egypt. He has these dreams. A very familiar and popular story, at least in the, from the biblical perspective. And what I'd like to share with you over the course of this message, but over a couple weeks that are to come, as Danielle and I kind of trudge through the last chapters of Genesis, a, a series that we've been going on for a little while, we're going to illuminate as best as we can, share with you how these stories fit within the larger story. We've been going over some of these little stories, these stories about Abraham, stories about Isaac, stories about Jacob, stories about Joseph, now a story about Judah and Tamar. And frequently, people ask the question, what is that story doing in the Bible? And especially if you have a view of the Bible, that is supposed to be your basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, or if it's your guidebook, or if it's your faith book. Sometimes you come to these stories and you're asking yourself the question, what is this story doing here? What does this have to do with me and what can I get out of it? And so hopefully over the course of the next couple weeks and over the course of this entire series, you've started to see how these little stories within this book are actually encapsulated in one large story. And they're all deeply connected. We're going to point out some of those connections today. And then we're going to turn our attention towards leadership. The idea of influence, the idea of people making a difference in the world from different places of position, different places of power, different places of authority, uh, different walks of life, different expectations from a culture. And so today is going to be the beginning of the rest of the series of Genesis, but we're going to learn some leadership lessons that we think are really important and are highlighted here in the Bible. So we're going to do so starting in chapter 38 with this story of Judah and Tamar, and we'll point out some things along the way, as we always do, and highlight, hopefully, some phenomenal things of what the scripture is telling us. So starting in verse 38, if you have been at Spark for a while, you know that sometimes these stories get a little NC-17. I think today is going to follow right in suit, so you will not be disappointed. Maybe it's more PG-13, depending upon how the MPAA is going to feel about this particular story. So, just a warning for you all. Chapter 38, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, actually, and we'll, again, point out some things along the way. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man at Adullam named Haran. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah or Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, warning PG-13 segment coming right now, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep pro from providing offspring for his brother. 
What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. We'll pause there for just a second. A couple of things I want to point out. Scholars have noticed that this chapter 38 kind of interrupts this story of Joseph. Joseph is being told about these, uh, the story of Joseph being the son of Isaac and is eventually is going to pick up again in chapter 39, but chapter 38 comes in and Joseph's name doesn't even appear in this chapter. There's an interruption in the story. Now, some people might criticize that and say, well, it's just kind of shoved in there. But other scholars have suggested this amazing thing, that just like... Joseph has disappeared from his family. So the author of Genesis is now writing in a disappearance of Joseph into the story with an interruption about Judah and Tamar. And so that idea, the concept that historically and event-wise, Joseph actually was sent away is now going to be reflected in its actual writing. That's really cool. The author of this book is doing in the literature what was happening in history, what was happening in the events. And those are some clues. That's a way for you, uh, for the author, to draw you in deeper into the dramatic events that are going to take place. And as we will see, this story comes actually in a very important place because it's going to set up what comes later. Now, there are a couple other things to point out in this story. Um, the first son is named Ur. And the story talks about how Ur was evil in the sight of God. And if you take a look at the word Ur in Hebrew, it's spelled Ein Reis going in this direction. And the word for evil is the exact opposite of Ur's name. And so that's a little clue in the text again that something is amiss, that something is not right. It's a play on his name. So that's really cool. The other thing is Onan's name means strength. He's supposed to be the strong one. But yet, in this story, in his obligation to fulfill his duty, he is actually very weak. So the writer is setting up all of these dramatic events. And so here we have this tree. Judah has this son, Ur, and then unfortunately, he goes away. Bye-bye. Now, the next son, Onan, he's supposed to fulfill his duty, but he doesn't fulfill his duty, and the Lord thinks that he's evil, and so he goes away. And now we're left with one son. Now, part of the drama of this event is this. Here's Judah. Here's his wife. Here are the sons that he's supposed to have. Now, part of what we may not feel or recognize, because it's not written there in the text necessarily, is how would you feel right now if you were Judah? What would be the psychological state of you, if you all of a sudden had two sons who had died, and a third son who looks like, oh, uh, if you uh, marry her, you're probably gone too. You know, there's something wrong with her. So that's also part of the drama. But Judah doesn't follow through, and instead of giving Tamar his third son, he says, go back to your home, and to a place called Anaim. Now, Anaim is a place that means eyes or it means wells, and that's going to come into play as well. Because Tamar, who is this player in this story, is going to be seen fully 
and completely by God, even though she may not be seen fully and completely by the players and the characters in the story. Now, I want to pause here for just a second, actually go back to this slide, because when you see this and when you see this, there's this commentary in the story that says, and the Lord put him to death. The Lord took his life. There's this book that we would uh, recommend to you if you're interested by Matthews and Benjamin called The Social World of Ancient Israel. And they make this commentary, which I think is very important for us when we start to read the story, which is this. Ancient people understood accidents, causes, etc., Yet they chose to attribute everything to God because of their worldview. Now, here's why this is important. Frequently, we have heard, and I have probably said, and maybe you have even said, did God really manipulate the death of these people? So God somehow, in the course of his power and his authority and his sovereignty, actually struck down those people, and it causes you as a modern thinker, to have these concerns about what kind of God is this? What kind of evil? I mean, this God is just killing people left and right. Now, that's one way of viewing it. If you accept this idea that the ancient people had a worldview that was deeply connected to God and attributed everything to God, and at the same time recognized that there were accidents, there are diseases, there are, quote, scientific reasons for why things have happened, then it helps you understand what it is that they're saying when they say things like, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. It helps you to understand and contextualize that not only are you getting into understanding who God is, but you're understanding who these people are and how they view their entire world. Does that make sense? If you ever hear criticisms of the scriptures, if you've ever struggled with the idea that God himself seems so mean and so evil because it says very clearly that God is the one who is putting them to death, we think this is a very important concept to understand. That in the ancient world, there is no other worldview for these people other than to understand that it was God who started, initiated, is the one who is over and in charge of all of these things. And still recognize that there would be accidents, that it was the bull, it was a disease, it was other natural events that were taking place. And that's, I think, really important for us to understand. Now we're going to finish on with the story. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, notice that phrase there, his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Haran the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down to the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Notice after some time had passed, Judah still is not fulfilling this obligation. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? she asked. 
I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and your cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, by the way, just a quick note here. The staff and the seal that was given over is in some ways kind of like a credit card. Here's what I'm going to give you, and I'll hold on to this until I can actually send to you the real payment for the services. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she, she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. And his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. What a beautiful story. Of a father-in-law who does not take care of his daughter-in-law, sends her away, and ends up sleeping with her because she pretended to be a prostitute, impregnates her, and then he says, you are an amazing woman. So what in the world is going on here? This is, again, one of those stories where you've got to ask yourself the question, what is going on? And the key question that I'd like to ask, at least for tonight, and there's multiple layers to ask, is this question. Why was Tamar more righteous? There's something radical going on in this story that in many ways subverts the ways that you and I and the ancient people thought the world worked. We think the world works in one particular way, but then a story like this comes along and says, actually, because God is involved in this world and God is involved in the story, the world actually works very, very differently. So let's ask the question and address, why was Tamar more righteous? It's because something transitional, something radical is happening here. It might be helpful to understand that there's a concept that happens when this biblical writer writes these things that's contrasting things 
between one story and another story. And that contrast is going to illuminate the point that the author is trying to make. Here's a couple examples. The drama and the event of the disappearance of Joseph, as we talked about before, is an event that actually happens, but it's also contrasted with the record and the writing. We talked about that earlier. So just like Joseph was hidden, so now Joseph is hidden in the story. There's this other contrast that happens. Remember, Jacob loses a son, and now Judah, later on in the story, is going to lose two sons. There's a contrast happening there. There's a goat. There's a goat in the Jacob story that was slaughtered in order to put the blood on the clothes. And now that goat shows up for Tamar in payment. Joseph's garment deceives a father, just as Tamar's garment, as she changes clothes, is also now deceiving a father. Do you see these contrasts that are happening in the story? This is going to be neat for later on, but Judah's sexual imprudence, the fact that he's sleeping now with a temple prostitute, is a setup for Joseph's sexual restraint later on uh, with the story of Potiphar's wife, which we will get to. And then the final contrast, which is the focus of today specifically, is going to be Judah's leadership. Remember, his role, his position, versus Tamar's leadership. Yeah, her leadership her prominence, her role, her influence within this community. And the reason why we know that is because of this beautiful piece of writing. Isn't that gorgeous? This is an ancient document written in a language called Akkadian. It's in a script called cuneiform where they would take wedges into wet clay and they press them in for letters. And this is dating to around the 12th century. It's a Middle Assyrian code of ethics, that's the code of law, the ways in which society is supposed to work way back to around the 12th century BC. And here's what it says. If a woman is still living in her father's house, but her husband has died, as long as she has sons, she may live in whichever of their houses she chooses. If she does not have a son, her father-in-law is to give her to whichever of his other sons he prefers Or if he wants, he may give her as a spouse to her father-in-law. If both her husband and her father-in-law are dead and she has no sons, she is a legal widow and may go wherever she wants. Now, why is this important? It's difficult for us to understand today because we don't have laws like this. But because of society back then and because of the importance of the community in order to keep security, uh, in order to keep thriving, in order to maintain social status, there are all sorts of dictates like this to make sure that if there was a death of somebody, there was a very clear way to protect and preserve the life of the widow and the life of the children. And this is one of them. And so you start to see that in the story when Judah... First son, Ur, dies, Tamar is given to Onan. That follows right along the lines of this. And again, part, all of this is to protect the widow and to protect the family, to protect the household and to ensure that all members of the community have safety, security. But what happens after Judah's second son? What happens after that? In accordance with this law, he almost takes his hands off and says, I can't do this, either because of the pain and the suffering of the loss of two sons, or he says, who cares? 
either who cares about the law, but also who cares about this woman in my household. There's all sorts of possible, flexible interpretations. Either way, Judah, who's supposed to be the patriarch, who's supposed to be the one to care for this family, who's supposed to be the one even to care for Tamar, according to this law, doesn't. He abdicates his responsibility to care for and says, go back to your family's household. I want to have nothing to do with you. And that's also symbolized, by the way, later on, when Tamar so brilliantly asks, what are you going to give me as a credit for the payment that is to come later? He says, my staff, my cord, and my seal. What are those symbols in the ancient world? My staff and my seal. Those are the very symbols of his prominence, his leadership, his position, in some ways the very symbols of the fact that he's supposed to be taking care of business, including, according to this law, marrying his daughter-in-law should all of his sons die. And what does he do? He gives them over. So the, the writer of Genesis is brilliantly, dramatically writing this to say, Judah's not taking responsibility for Tamar. He's not taking responsibility for the family. And symbolically, then, he just takes his staff and his cord and his seal and says, okay, here you go, I hand it over. And in some ways, I think the biblical writers are saying, Tamar, in this situation, is in some ways taking the leadership role from Judah, upon herself. And Judah, symbolically, unknowingly, unwittingly, is giving it over to her. Now, I know it's really hard, because sometimes for us, all we see are the sexual ethics. But please understand that in this world, those sexual ethics don't have the same weight and same burden as they do today. The key thing here is the protection of the woman, the protection of the family, and the consummation of the marriage is symbolic, is representative of, you are now coming under my care, my protection, my household. Do you see this drama? This leader, the one who is in the position of leadership, the one who is in prominence of leadership, the one who had the name for leadership, gives it over, abdicates his responsibility. And Tamar, who is really, as a woman, without the status, without the position, without the role, but she's got something else that Judah doesn't have. And that's the integrity and the wherewithal and the responsibility to almost force Judah into taking his own level of leadership. So, why was Tamar more righteous then? Well, Judah knows this. He understands that he has abdicated his responsibility, and so she, he says she is more righteous than I. She has followed the law accordingly for the protection of herself, for the protection of her future sons, for the protection of this community. And so here's the key point. Now, please catch this. This is so brilliant Tamar highlights the biblical theme. This is going to be a theme that is going to be throughout of righteous leadership, subverting authoritarian abuse, neglect, disobedience, and abdication. That's what's going on in this story. While Judah is not taking responsibility, Tamar is. 
Judah is the one who has the position, who has the seal, who has the cord and the staff. Tamar is just a widow. However, because she is righteous, because she knows what is correct, and because she manipulates her way through the system, she ends up forcing the powers that be to end up doing the thing that is right. And this is going to be a biblical theme throughout all of the rest of the scriptures. You're going to see this with Joseph. Does that sound familiar? For those of you who are familiar with the Joseph story, that those who might happen to be in power don't necessarily take full leadership and responsibility, but it's those who don't have the power that are going to rise up. It's the same thing with David. It's going to be the same thing with Jesus. It's going to be the same thing throughout. You're going to see this theme all throughout, and this is one of the highlights right in here as we begin the Joseph story. In other words, authority, role, position, or power do not equal leadership in the Bible. In fact, it is frequently those who are not in positions of power, those who are in subservient roles in society who act as the most effective leaders. This is one of the reasons why I love this story and these scriptures so much. We think the world works in one particular way. In fact, we still live under that same regime. Power, position, authority, those who happen to have the titles and who are in charge. But the Bible is highlighting in this story and will throughout once again. Title, position, power, authority is almost irrelevant when it comes to the idea and the concept of leadership, how to influence a community, how to do what is right. And the reason why I love this lesson is because I like to watch a lot of TED Talks every now and then. And one of them most recently, for those of you who are my Facebook friends, you saw that I posted this quote. Because this, to me, parallels exactly what we're seeing in this story. This is Simon Sinek who wrote or who said, Leadership is a choice. It is not a rank. I know many people at the senior most levels of organizations who are absolutely not leaders. They are authorities, and we do what they say because they have authority over us, but we would not follow them. And I know many people who are at the bottom of organizations who have no authority, and they are absolutely leaders. And this is because they have chosen to look after the person to the left of them, and they have chosen to look after the person to the right of them. This is what a leader is, and this is exactly what Tamar does. She chooses to look out after the people and care for them and to take responsibility, to understand what the law is, why the law is there, and to adhere to it for the express purpose of fulfilling the spirit of the law, which is the protection of herself, the protection of her sons, to ensure that there aren't members of the community who are just left out. And even though we get very confused by the sexuality of the whole thing, please don't miss the point that Tamar is being a leader in this story, even though she does not have the position. And Judah, even though he has the position, is not taking the leadership role. Okay, so let me just sum up. One of the things that I think is really important for us then to take away from this story, as well as others that we will get to throughout the Joseph story, all of you, every single one of us, we're all leaders. In the biblical sense, Every single one of us have the prerogative, the power, the opportunity, maybe hopefully the desire, to do what is right in spite of those who might have the position 
or the title or the authority over us. And from a biblical perspective, what we would suggest is our leadership is characterized, again, not by position, role, authority. Just like Tamar, who is more righteous than I, our leadership is characterized by righteousness, not by authority, power, or position. So as you read this story, as well as other stories that are to come, our hope and our encouragement to all of you is that wherever you are, I've mentioned before, parents, you are leaders. If you're, quote, just a worker, you are a leader. If you're in a community group, you are a leader. Teachers in classrooms, you are leaders. And in this particular sense, you are leading and you have a power and an opportunity to lead in a way that is very righteous and extremely influential, even in spite of whatever authorities may be above or over you. And hopefully as we read through these stories, especially with the Joseph story that is coming and others that are along down the line, we start to see this theme over and over and over again. Those who don't seem to have all the key characteristics of what we may think leadership should be, those are the ones who actually end up leading well, righteously, making a difference, influencing their world in a way that has radical transformational effects in the world. And those people who are actually sitting in the top chair, sometimes they completely abdicate their role of responsibility of leadership. And sometimes it's almost because they're sitting in that chair. And so this is why this story, I think, is so important for us. It's also important because as you take a look at this chart, which is part of the Bible that sometimes we fall asleep in, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, and you take a look at this person down here, and you follow this all the way back, all the way back, all the way back. Look who's the first woman that is listed in that genealogy. Your leadership like Tamar's leadership, is going to have an impact and an influence in generation after generation after generation to come, and you will not even be aware of it. And I think the commission for all of us by Tamar herself is to take hold of that leadership, to bring it on, to say, yes, in whatever areas of influence I have, I'm going to leverage what is right. I'm going to see clearly why the law is here, the spirit of law, what it is intended to do. And there may be people all around me, people in positions of authority who are pressing in to causing me to want to do one thing or another thing. But the reality is there are amazing subversive ways to lead and to influence that can have this kind of an effect all the way down the lineage, all the way down to generations and generations that are to come. So church, friends, family, let's be those kinds of leaders where we take it upon ourselves to see what is right. And even in spite of people around us abdicating leadership all the time. In fact, as I'm talking every now and then, I'll see these nodding heads like, does anybody know of leaders who completely abdicate the responsibility to care for the people they're supposed to? Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, I would totally see that. This is around, it's almost an epidemic. From a biblical perspective, who cares? Because you're a leader. And you have an opportunity and the power and the prerogative to do exactly what Tamar does. Not dress yourself up as a prostitute and go sleep with your father-in-law. That's not what I'm talking about. But to hear very clearly what is intended, what is right. What is the duty to care for those around us? 
to look to the left, to look to the right, to see what influence do I have here that can ensure their protection, that can ensure their growth, maturities, that can ensure that. So that's Tamar and Judah. And that's why chapter 38 is in there. Because as Joseph comes along, we need to see very clearly that Judah and Tamar, there's a failure of leadership there. There's that tension that's happening there. And we're going to see Joseph, in contrast, again, to Judah, is going to actually become that leader again. Now, Pharaoh's got the title, but Joseph has the leadership. And this is going to be very, very, it's going to scream off the page. I've asked Ryan to just come, and we're going to sing Be Thou My Vision. Because I think in accordance with this teaching, sometimes our vision or the thing that we see in front of us is title, people in authority, people in power, people who have the prestige, or we sometimes are so frustrated and angry and upset at those leaders around us who have abdicated their responsibility that we ourselves honestly just want to give up. If they're not going to lead, then I'm not going to lead. So hopefully as we sing this song, we see that God is our vision. Not the failed leadership of the people around us, but that God is our vision. And that we keep our eyes solely set on him and so that we can have the power and the strength and the inspiration to lead in the way that God has called all of us to lead. And then the last thing is that I would encourage all of us, for you in your community groups, in your family, as friends, encourage one another in their leadership. When you see somebody doing something right, say, that, that is great leadership. That's going to influence this world. That's going to make a radical difference in that child's life. That is going to make a huge difference in this organization, in this company. What you're doing right there, that's going to have a great end result for um, your work group. You know, that thing that you did right there, that's going to really make mom or dad really happy because of how you've chosen the right thing. Encourage one another in this leadership. Lord, I thank you for these stories. And as much as it is sometimes confusing for us and sometimes distracting, as much as sometimes we're perplexed as to why these stories are in, in here. God, illuminate for us once again that you are turning this world upside down as you are so wont to do. And may we enter into these stories and embrace them fully and completely and be inspired once again by those who do not have title, do not have role. May we be inspired once again by characters like Tamar, to lead into this world well with righteousness so that we can make a difference, so we can transform this world. And, and God, remind us that we may not always see the end results or the full breadth and scope of our leadership, but just remind us, God, that generations down the line, even after we are long gone, the influence and the impact of us choosing to follow you wholeheartedly will still be felt and still be there. Thank you for the story. Thank you for Tamar. Thank you for Judah. Thank you for Joseph. And thank you for all the wonderful successes and failures of these human beings. May we see ourselves more and more in these stories. And may our eyes continually be set on you. And we pray in your name.